standard issue for all women. Hello, Jen here to tell you about this week's episode of The Sunday Chops. Now, regular listeners of the show will remember a couple of years ago I chatted to Baz Moffat and Dr Emma Ross, who, alongside Dr Bella Smith, founded The Well HQ. A coach, scientist and GP, respectively, the trio wanted to address the huge knowledge gap around how women's bodies work and function, which hinders our ability to optimise participation and enjoyment in the health and fitness disciplines. With the well now going from strength to strength, they've published a new book, The Female Body Bible, A Revolution in Women's Health and Fitness. And my goodness, is a revolution needed. Baz joins me to chat about the book in this week's episode. We talk about her experiences as an elite athlete and coach, the more than marginal gains to be made in women's sport by a better understanding of women's bodies, as well as addressing some of the common myths during the rounds about women's participation in sports and fitness at different life stages. As ever, I could have chatted to Baz for about a million years about all of this, so I do hope that you enjoy listening as much as I enjoyed chatting to her. I am joined by Baz Moffat, co-founder of The Well HQ and co-author of new book, The Female Body Bible, A Revolution in Women's Health and Fitness. Welcome back, Baz. How are you doing? Thanks. I am really well today. Thank you very much for having me. Excellent. So you have been on the podcast before and I feel like The Well is increasingly visible in sort of public discourse around mm. the, these kind of issues. But in case anyone doesn't know what the well is and who you are, can you tell us a little bit about the well, please, Baz? Yeah, I mean, I think we came on your podcast and we just launched, which mm. was like over two years ago now. So the well, our aim and purpose is very much to talk to and educate anyone that's working with girls and women about girls and women. And that feels pretty straightforward. It feels like, yeah, obviously, of course, anyone that is coaching or supporting or working with girls and women in the exercise space needs to understand them. But it's it's really hard because actually the system hasn't been designed with that in mind at all. And that's what we're attempting to do. And that's what this book is here to do is to kind of like help educate girls and women about their bodies. But we're also supporting coaches and personal trainers and PE teachers and you know governing bodies about girls and women's bodies. A little bit about you as well, Baz, because you have meddled for Great Britain as a rower mm. at the World Championships. Did you also represent Great Britain in Beijing? No, I didn't. I got dropped a month before Beijing. So I was on the British rowing team. And that's that's the rub of elite sport, isn't it? You know, like I was on the British rowing team for four years and I and I just made the boat for three years. I was like just made it into like, you know, the, the British boat and did world championships. And then in Olympic year, I just didn't make the boat. And that margin is absolutely tiny. And obviously at the time, I was absolutely devastated because I had put all my eggs into one basket and that was that was I was so fully focused on that but I don't I don't regret it I don't regret like now in hindsight I'm like you know it's, I, I'm not bitter about that experience at all but no I didn't I didn't get to the Olympics but I did do world championships and world cups and things. Because your background is in sports performance, isn't it? So you studied sort of sports yeah. performance, yeah. then you got into rowing like a bit later than I think. A bit later. People sort of imagine elite athletes kind of crack on, right? Yes, it's really interesting because I think that um, rowing, you only have to do one thing. You have to do it really well. <laughs> you only have to do like one thing over and over again. And obviously you have to have like a physiology that can kind of like push itself to a fairly extreme place. Um, 
but I'd always been sporty. I was very average, most like, but I did every single type of sport. So I kind of had a body that could move and I just hadn't necessarily had the right opportunities or been in the right place or found my niche. So then when I got into my twenties, uh, I just thought, oh, I'm never going to be, I'm never going to be great at sport I'll just start doing it for fun and and started rowing in Hackney of all places you know most people think Putney southwest London is where all the rowing happens but actually I was in Hackney where in Hackney did you row like on the Lee on the River Lee oh okay that makes sense yeah 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 Yeah, it was absolutely brilliant I absolutely adored it and um and I just started rowing and really started liking it and just thought god you know what like maybe I'll just give this a go and see what happens but I was late I was kind of post uni sort of like 22 right 22 Two is probably when I started rowing, yeah. With that in mind, like obviously you have been an elite athlete, you've competed mm. at elite level. You know, from your own personal experience, any of the stuff that you, you know, the things that you're trying to implement now, did you benefit from any of that as an athlete or was it really just completely overlooked? No, it was completely overlooked. And fascinatingly, if you kind of cut those of you that can cast their mind back to sort of 2008. It was the time of David Brailsford, British cycling, mm. marginal gains. Marginal gains, this kind yeah. of, Remember marginal gains and that concept of, you know, we're, we're doing everything pretty pretty well, so we're never going to find huge gains. But what we'll do is we'll add up all these tiny little things, like the type of feathers that are in pillows, how round can we make these wheels, what thread are we going to use in the skin suit, like getting down to the absolute minutiae which in and, in and of itself would make no difference. But if you add up all these marginal gains together, then you'd get, a, you know, you, that was the theory. So I was in a time of that mm. and we weren't doing it to the extent of British cycling, but we were, you know, we were no, no stone being left unturned, like, you know, all that. And yet there was girls being sick over the side of the boat two days a month. There was girls whose backs would flare up a week before their period. And, there was definitely girls that were wearing two or three bras, you know, wow. and at elite level. Yeah, that's not marginal gains. I think back then, so that's 2008. So that was kind of, you know, 15, a good 15 years ago. That was naivety. That was like no knowledge. Mm. But that, that you can't blame the system back then for not doing any of this stuff because there was no information really about this. But now you absolutely can challenge check and challenge what's going on because we know so much more now but you can blame a system not rowing specifically but you can blame a system as in I mean like as I always say to people this is a bit above your pay grade because we're talking about systemic across the like global right let's go for it (laughs) but like you can blame a system that has left it until beyond Mm. 2008 yeah right to actually bother to find out the information yeah. like it's nuts that you know it's called your book is you know a revolution in women's health and fitness like it is about time for that revolution right it is and you know that again back then it was the time we were still having the conversation it was about equality it was equity was not a concept it mm. wasn't a concept it was like equal so we want to have when we go on training camps or to competitions we want to be in the same standard of hotel as the boys we want to have the same quality of boats we want to have the same number of coaches we want to have the same kit like as in like we want to have the same amount of kit so it was all about being the same so there wasn't an opportunity back then to have a conversation about but we're different too and we need Mm. different things it was like the men had kind of set the standard in terms of sponsorship and money and resources and all that and it's like we are in such a different position to them 
let's do let's be the same and it was a time you know the national lottery funding had mm-hmm. relatively recently been brought in and that was very, you know, that was there was gender parity in a way there because we they had to fund you know people had to have the same amount of sponsorship and the same level of funding and that really really helped but the conversation back then was very much about equality and so we didn't want to ever say oh but we're different it was like we were made to feel and it's still the same now you're made to feel very grateful for what you're given and it's like you know oh like here's your kit bag I'm like hasn't got a bra in it it's like well just be grateful that you've actually got kit like okay like that's fine <laughs> you know I think this is like one of the things that I come back to all the time is that it feels like I think a lot with women's football although that ha- it has changed a lot in the last 10 years but I remember interviewing Emma Hayes like about 10 years ago when mm. Chelsea had just gone fully professional and I think I asked her the yeah. question like you know um can we ever compete like with the men's game kind of thing and she was a bit like well look, why do we have to keep comparing them they're different products uh, at the time I was a bit like why do why do we have to be grateful for these little scraps we're being thrown yeah. like at that point in time they'd just gone fully professional but they were earning like a London living wage that is not a lot mm. of money compared to it's not like, really improved that much but yeah the- the conversation that's now happening within football or, or any professional athletes is, is around pre and postnatal, isn't it? And we're still, mm. you know, there was, there was, I think it was triathlon that said, oh, we'll protect your world ranking for 12 months. And it's like, let's be grateful for that. But like, let's hang, hang on, let's think about that for one moment. Like, you're pregnant for nine months. Are you honestly <laughs> going to be back on, on at high yeah. performance level in, at, at where you were three months? No. So let's not be grateful for that and say it's not good enough. And I think that um, I think that conversation is starting to happen more. I mean, you know, it's it's tough. It's it, it's really hard, isn't it? Do we just get angry? Do we just get angry and say this isn't good enough, or we or do we just like take a bit and then just go for more? And it's it's kind of getting that balance right, isn't it? Mm. Or do we? <laughs> Write a book about it, addressing the many issues. This is my seamless segue, Baz, into the book. So, like, can you tell us a little bit about it and the kind of things that it covers? Because it's very accessible and it's not just for, you know, elite athletes or people who train elite athletes. And it's a lot more about, like, actual the mechanics and science behind women's bodies, right? It's not just, like, I think it would be interesting for someone who wasn't even necessarily particularly interested in sport, right? Totally. And you know what? Like defining how we describe women in this book was really, really hard. Like we don't want to call them athletes. We don't want to call them active women. We don't want, and there isn't like a term. It's kind of people just who feel they can have some ownership of their health. It's probably the best way to describe who this book is aimed at. And it came about literally because we're like, there's nothing out there. There are some very high level, hugely dense scientific text. And then there are people writing about their lived experience, about really specific things, whether it's endometriosis or like pregnancy or menopause. But there isn't like a generic book that is really easily accessible, very, very practical, evidence based, but covers everything. Because what kind of happens is that we talk about female health and we go straight to the period or Mm -hmm. straight to the bra. And it's like, well, actually... We need to look at everything that happens exclusively inside a woman's body and everything that happens differently. And we all need to have a good level or a basic, a good level of understanding about all of these topics. And we're applying all of these parts of a woman's body to exercise and to sport because we want women to be able to move throughout their life. And we know there are times in a woman's life when that becomes really, really hard. So whether that's obviously the life stages so puberty pre postnatal menopause when you get injured when you you know when you have like you know um sort of 
debilitating menstrual cycle symptoms when abrupt all the all of these challenges that happen stop women moving and we want women to like move and exercise you know as, as much as they want to and that's what this book is really here to do is kind of educate women about their bodies so that they can enjoy exercising and doing sport because we're just not taught anything like we're taught basic biology we're taught ovaries fallopian tubes uterus period like the biology mm. and it nothing really goes much beyond that so I want to come back to a couple of those sort of specific issues that you've talked about there but I thought there's something just like page four of the book something really interesting that you've written there which is while the identity of being sporty means different things to different people our definition of being an active woman is someone who enjoys moving their body for health and fitness or performance reasons I was thinking about this point about identity right because I grew up in the 90s obviously we had the Spice Girls sporty spice etc etc like I know men who are more into sports and fitness than other men but I don't think about that as if like that's their personality whereas with a woman if she exercises that's somehow like notable do you know what I mean like oh well she's she's into sport kind of thing and like that is their personality that they that they like to go to the gym or whatever and I was thinking like it's weird to me and a point that that you kind of make in the book is that and and in general is that being active actually should just be normal right and yet somehow for women it's still like notable you know what like I've never thought of it like that but you're absolutely right like men just do fitness or do sport and they're not the sporty they're not you know oh there's john the footballer it's just oh john plays football he's not like, sporty spice whereas, is he <laughs> yeah whereas actually i play i play netball with a group of mums a group of mums on a monday night i blooming love it and i'm kind of baz the netballer i'm like no i'm not i'm not i play for an hour a week and most weeks i don't actually make it but it's that you're absolutely right and i think that it is news isn't it it is news and it's something that we feel we need to talk about when women are being active and doing exercise where it's actually it does it does need to be normal because it is still less common I guess well the statistics do show you know like Mm -hmm. there is a huge disparity between the numbers of women who are maintaining the sort of bare minimum levels of activity that that we sort of say are basic health requirements I guess like there's huge disparity between men and women and I think you know for reasons that you've kind of outlined and for reasons I spoke to Kelly Gordon who's the project lead for a new Netball England campaign Mm -hmm. Netball Her on the podcast the other week and we talked about these key life stages that act as barriers to participation but I was wondering do you think women want to be active because there is a difference between wanting to do something and feeling intimidated by it or unsupported to do it and I you know I think if women don't want to be active there's there are lots of societal reasons for that I'm not saying do you think women are innately different to men in this respect Mm. but do you do you think that there are still like a lot of women who fundamentally just don't have any interest in it And, and what do you think we can do to change that? Yeah, so I think if we, like, cut away the people that, like, are the sporty ones and will will always be active. So if we look at the other group that you're describing there that aren't being active, do they want to be? I mean, if you ask them, they'll be like, no, I'm all right. Like, I don't miss it. I don't crave it. I don't have this, like, inner desire. Um, If you talk to them about their bodies, like, are they they in pain or does things hurt? Like, what are their energy levels like? Mm. Like, um, what's their self-esteem around their physicality? Um, then I think they you would probably come up with a 
that they will be able to describe like how unhappy they are with certain aspects not not looking at not looking at how they look mm -hmm. but like how they feel inside their physical self the solution to that is movement like if you can move if you can move well and movement feels good then that is great and that is, we know of all the benefits that exercise has but if you if, if you're like i don't really like exercise but i know i should i'm gonna go and do it and you, you rock up to a boot camp or a or a dance class or and it's like and, and it's horrendous and it feels awful you can't do it it's, you're uncoordinated like your body just feels like it's not you, you can't you can't describe what it's supposed to be doing those people you kind of only have one chance with mm. them they won't go they won't go back they'll be like no that's it i've told you i told you i hated exercise i told you i was rubbish i told you i couldn't do it and it's that it's that resilience to keep going back and say well maybe i could find something else and i think that mm. the options there's a lot of options out there for women that are like can be really committed and also have a body that that they can control and can move well but for the other end there's not as much out there and also they don't have that motivation they don't have a real drive to find it either mm. so i think there's a bit of a mismatch i think one of the problems is that i'd sort of tried to get into the gym a bit like in my 20s and never really stuck at it until i did this ridiculous thing in my late 20s early 30s where I tried all the Olympic sports basically just like for fun and then that completely changed my relationship with sport because I was like well sport and fitness I should say because then I was like there are so many things out there that mm. you can try like it's yeah. not just this sort of really basic menu that we're given at school like you've got mm. netball football hockey yeah. and if you don't like those yeah. sorry probably not for yeah. you but obviously not everyone you can't just go and try every olympic no. sport like it's it's no. quite it's quite hard to do yeah so, i can imagine so there are all these different things out there obviously so i think it is about finding the right one but i think one of the reasons why i couldn't stick at it before then was because you have to have realistic expectations about what is going to happen you're not going to walk into a gym and come out and look like you know Britney Spears abs no. circa toxic do you know what I mean yeah <laughs> yeah to, to age myself there with a very specific reference you also might not like it you mm. might, might not you you know people talk about exercise oh I love exercise I like come out and I want an absolute high or like you know that that cliche you mm. never regret you never regret a, an, an exercise you want you know you might not want to do it but mm. you always feel better afterwards sometimes you don't no. and that's like but it's that sometimes you don't and I yeah. think that's where gyms in the last few years have like really focused on community and really focused mm. on like the identity of the gyms and like making sure that you're there for social you're, you're there and you're socially connected with, mm. with like a group of people that are like kind of familiar and you feel comfortable with because they know that actually it can't just be the exercise like is why people are going to be mm. showing up and my experience is that you you don't get that endorphin high until actually it becomes something that you can do a bit more easily. Yeah. Like to start off with, it's I horrible. Agree. And yeah. you're just like, well, that's shit. I don't want to do that again. Yeah. So you have to, yeah. you do have to stick with it if you're going to get any kind of benefit you don't, from it. You don't understand how to pace yourself, do you? Yeah. So if you're doing a 40 minute, a 40 minute mm. class and it's like one minute of burpees or one minute of squats, but actually, you've got to see it as a 40... If you were going for a 40-minute run, you wouldn't, like, blast it for a minute. You'd go, I'm doing a 40-minute run. I'm going to take it nice and steady. I'm going to pace myself. But I think when it's, like, an exercise class and you've been given a station to do something on, you kind of go all in. But actually, if your fitness level isn't there, you need to back, You need to go in at a 40-minute effort, not a one-minute effort. And then because it's that horrible feeling of when your body, your, your lactate's there, mm. like, your heart rate's too high, you just you just can't 
pull that back in, can you? And mm. I think that's really hard. So I want to talk about some of those key, I guess, like life points that I mentioned before. So I'm going to start with periods, which is something that we're talking about a lot more in relation to sports. And I want to talk about a topical issue, actually. Leah Williamson has just become the third high profile Arsenal women's player to succumb to an ACL injury, which Mm. we know is... I think six times more likely to happen to female footballers than male footballers. Now, obviously, I I don't know what's going on in the Arsenal women's camp. And this is not to suggest that that it is definitely this issue. But it does raise questions about things like training around menstrual cycles and when we Mm. might be more likely to pick up injuries. And I know that, like, for example, the Chelsea team have been doing some work around this to sort of tailor training around their players' menstrual cycles. I wondered if you could tell me, do we need to train differently at different points of our menstrual cycles? So that's two separate questions. So let's Mm -hmm. like focus on the question about, well, we definitely need to dive into that injury piece because that's fascinating and there's loads to talk about there. But like we talk about the, do we need to train differently around our cycle? In the book, we quote 6% because, you know, very recently, like in the last month or so, a new research paper has come out that said 8% of sports science research is done exclusively on girls, uh, on females, okay? So everything that happens differently and exclusively inside a woman's body, only 8% of sports science research is done on that. So the evidence base Mm -hmm. is very, very low. Yeah, We don't have the evidence base to apply the research to general populations. So we can't say that you should do this in this in the first half of your cycle and this in the second half of your cycle. We can apply things individually to people, but we can't kind of come up mm-hmm. with these generic terms. Yeah. But what we can say is that, and any woman listening to this will know that they they feel, if they are tracking their cycle, if they are kind of like, you know, and not just, not when I was, you know, I, I've got two kids. When I wanted to become pregnant, which was kind of like eight, nine years ago now, the only way that was the only time when you started tracking your cycle mm. like and so things have massively moved on now that there's people are just tracking because they're interested in what what their menstrual cycle is doing and want to notice how they feel at different stages of their cycle so we can there'll be times in your cycle when you feel generally in the first half not always but generally in the first half where you feel awesome and that's what our hormones are there to do is we're supposed to be going out there and finding a mate and you know and and reproducing so the the first half is often a time when we can be uh, we can really optimize our training we can go harder we can do we can get bigger gains from strength training in that first half of the cycle and the second half of the cycle when we've ovulated the hormones are there to kind of like calm things down slow things down kind of like if, if we are going to have a baby it's kind of like set up to do that but regardless of whether we we are pregnant or not like the hormones kind of do the similar thing in that second half of the cycle so we can absolutely, as an individual, tap into the power of our hormones without a doubt. But then if you think about a football club, mm. like, so, you know, you, you quoted Chelsea. Mm. They are not, that, that Chelsea squad is not on individualised training plans. It's mm. not like one person does this. So if you, because they can't, they've yeah. got their matches on certain days. Mm-hmm. They've got their straight, they've got access to the gym on certain days. They've got their pitch training on certain days. Like, you can't do a squad like that but what those players will know is when they feel awesome and when they feel great and they can go hard and when are the times when they need to do an extra warm-up when they need to when they need to do different things to tap into 
their physiology. And um, because I think people always freak out when they go, oh my God, are we honestly going to, as a coach, do I have to individualize this training to a whole squad of players? Yeah. They, that is impractical to do. But as an individual, without a doubt, you can absolutely tap into like what's going on hormonally. From an injury perspective, the question you just asked, I mean, it's, it's, all over the it's all over the news isn't it and it's devastating because that is that is not something that you bounce back from and obviously with no. the world cup this year it's it's nine ten months is that mm. is the is the rehab back from a um, acl so it's not because of their period okay so there are we get injured mm-hmm. for many 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 reasons in terms of there are things in a female body that we just can't change. So we cut. So the fact that women have wider hips means that their angle going down to the knee is there's greater force going through the knee, which is a really big reason as to why there are more knee injuries than uh, in women than men. You can't do anything about that. The hormones, there is evidence to show that when estrogen is high at certain times in your cycle, there is an increase in joint laxity. Now, so the the joints are a little bit more, move around a bit more. Mm. We haven't connected that to injury, but the logic is, well, maybe you will be more likely to get injured at certain times. But what we can't do is is get women to believe that they are more vulnerable at certain times of their cycle. Because what happens if that is the biggest game of their season and they're like, oh my God, like it's day 10, like that's, I can't, I can't do that. If you've got that as a mental mindset, then mm. so what, when, when you go out and you talk to the best doctors and the best physios and you say, right, what do we do with this? How do we manage this? We say, we need to be producing strong, resilient women that are able to not get injured on any day of their cycle. And the, the, the difference that each, that estrogen effect has is tiny, absolutely tiny. But if we make sure that there's, there's, for example, there aren't any football boots designed for, there's one brand that does a football boot designed for a woman's foot. Nike and Adidas do not. So women are not playing what? a football boot for them yet. No. No, they do colours, but in terms of like the actual design of the woman's foot, it is not designed for the biomechanics of a woman's foot. So they... So then they're playing in men's and boys' feet. So we're different to men and men. That's not good. We're often, we are often put, and this might not be the case for Arsenal, but we're often put on poorer playing services because we Mm. are the lesser teams. That increases injury rates. We also, from the age of five, girls move a lot less than boys. We don't know how to move. So even when we're, you know, even when we're, working with elite teams the coaches are like they can't move we're like but they can play football amazingly yeah they can't but they, they've got the skills for football but they can't move and so we need to be teaching girls how to move brilliantly so there are lots and lots of things we can do i think that we need to keep going with the menstrual cycle but we can't pin everything on the menstrual cycle because that's what's happening in our body like that's we can't it's change unavoidable that. yeah it's unavoidable and it, you just see i saw a post on social media a few weeks ago that mm-hmm. was i think it was associated with rugby and it like broke the cycle up into four four chunks, which is fine. But it's like phase three, like don't don't change directions, don't twist and turn. You're more prone to injury. I'm like, that is not the messaging we need to be sending out. Like, how? What do you do with that as a rugby player? You're like, that's that's I can't not play for a week a mm. month. And of course, yeah, as you say, like your games are just whenever your games are. Like you can't just yeah. be like, well, sorry, it's not convenient for me. No, and I think that. But when, you know, you're going into the workplace and they're, they're, some of them are doing menstrual cycle policies and they're saying, oh, well, we'll give you leave. Well, you say you don't have to, you know, they might, you might get, it's like, no, create an environment where a woman can show up, like give her, every, we need to not, yeah. we can't be removing yeah. women from society because they're menstruating or got their period. They, 
we have to create a society that supports them and especially in sport yeah i know i 100 percent agree with you so (laughs) let's let's put that to bed right now yeah (laughs) so i want to move on to what i think is one of your specialist subjects baz we love a bit of pelvic floor chat on this podcast let's do it i had a baby almost three years ago and her head was so big (laughs) they worried there might be something medically wrong with her Mm. you know where I'm going with this I had to have some physiotherapy is what I'm saying I have always been led to believe that basically you know with with a kind of minimal amount of effort we should just sort of bounce back after we've had babies and that's in with regards to pelvic floor and all sorts of other things but that is not the case is it it's not really as straightforward as just like well squeeze a bit and your you know your vagina will be tighter or whatever it's kind of like it's all related to like your stomach muscles and like I've yeah. got like a an injured hip joint as a result yeah. of pelvic floor issues. Can you tell us a little bit more about the sort of science behind it? We wrote the book because no one knows how to do their pelvic floor, not just because pelvic floor, but mm. for everything that we cover. I think people just instinctively know that we know how to be women, right? So we know that let's just focus on pelvic floor. We know what a pelvic floor should do, what it shouldn't do and how to how to do the exercises and the most you will probably get unless you go and see a specialist is a leaflet you probably get mm. a nod from your you know, yeah probably the only time someone will talk to you is a health visitor or a midwife say are you doing your pelvic floors yes I and then you might get in a yoga class or a pilates class yeah. oh lift your pelvic floor squeeze your pelvic floor we have zero clue how mm-hmm. to do that and it is such a you know most women i know that you know you you had the, the birth trauma and, and, and the implications of that. But most women's sort of pelvic floor issues will be a little bit of leaking when they're doing jumping on a trampoline, skipping, you know, running, whatever. You know, oh, it's all right. Like, can't be that big a deal, honestly. But it, it really is. Mm. It really massively, first of all, you have this fear of it happening. And then when it happens, you just, you're like, oh, for God's sake, it, it, you hate it. So it, it stops women moving. It stops women being active. It stops you being able to gain all the benefits that you get from exercise because you're so worried about it. But also some women have huge, huge issues. And it's not just around childbirth. It's like, no. So childbirth is significant for the reasons that you've just described. Like you've got a massive head coming out of a fairly small space. And, you know, babies are getting bigger. We're having babies older. And it's just kind of like, physiologically it's a tough gig and it's it's a massive trauma on that part of the body but we also know that within sport even women that haven't had children so there's a young athletic top of their game women the um, prevalence rates in gymnastics and trampolining are 80 90 percent and then if you say so then if you go do netball if you do volleyball if you do mm. sprinting football we are 60 70 percent plus and that is huge numbers of women playing sport that are that have pelvic floor dysfunction and yet they're not they're not asking for help they're not doing anything they're probably wearing black the, the what how they will be fixing it they'll wear black they may well put pads in their pants or wear period pants and then most likely stop drinking stop drinking a few hours beforehand to kind of hopefully stop that happening and then they're dehydrated and they mm. can't perform anyway what do you think about because this is a conversation that i've seen a bit more widely of late the kind of like normalization i guess of pelvic floor dysfunction so like wear pads like blah blah blah. i mean obviously pads yeah. are a means to an end for some people but we should be saying more along the lines of like okay this is like a short-term solution let's fix this right i used to be really against anything to do with pads i was like they're like the devil and now I've shifted, I've like mellowed a bit. I've said, right, 
the most important thing is that we move. That is the most important thing. And if we have to wear pads or period pants to help us do that, to give us the confidence, then crack on and do it. But be under no illusion that that is fixing the problem. We also, that's not enough. So we then need to put on an extra layer of education around that and say, right, well, we, and we need to be incorporating pelvic floor exercises into gym sessions. And I'm working with, a, with a, a, one of the, the biggest gym chains in the country and I'm designing a gym session. I'm training their trainers to be able to properly coach pelvic floor exercises at the end of their cool down. So it's incorporated into it. So we need to be educating people and incorporating it into normal exercise how to do these exercises. I'm I'm grand. I mean, obviously, I don't want people to stop drinking. I'm grand with them wearing black. I'm glad, glad with them sort of, you know, popping in pads and things, if that's going to help them. But we have to make sure they realise that's not the fix. That mm. is just, that's the, that's the sticking plaster. There's still massive things underneath that need to be happening. One of the things that I did after I had my daughter was I got the the NHS Squeezy app, right? Squeezy app, yeah. And there's a bit in your book, why why are they so boring, <laughs> the pelvic floor exercises? Because they really are. And what I found I was doing was just every time I got the alarm saying, right, time to do what? I was just like, right, off you pop, just swipe that away or whatever. Yeah. Probably an obvious answer to this question, but what do you do? How, how do you make yourself yeah. do these things? When I, I mean, I've worked with hundreds of women on their pelvic floor. People went into two camps and the camp that, just really angry, like really angry that they have to do it. They were like, they were like, why the hell, why do I have to sort this out? Like, why do I have to invest time and sometimes money into this issue? And, and I don't, I don't get any endorphin high. No one even notices on the outside. It's like getting your, your guttering done or your roof done or like something that it's not like buying a new sofa or a new pair of leggings that people can notice like it's not you don't nobody notices you don't you get zero credit from the outside world from doing your pelvic floor exercises and so it's this there's this real like anger and animosity around like i just don't want to do it and whereas we we do brush our teeth we've mm. got that that's a cultural thing we we do do that and but pelvic floor is is you know something that we just we're just really hard at adhering to but then the other group that got it were the group that were like they they had this mindset where like this is my this is my treat and I am treating myself and this is time for me where I can check in and they almost use it as a meditation so they work they almost use it as a time to kind of like calm their breathing down get into this place do some pelvic floor work so they they and they they were much more compliant and stuck with the exercise as opposed to a thing to do as opposed to another thing on your to do list which is far too long anyway and you don't have time to do every day. They just saw it as a as a as a gift and a treat at a time when they were like investing in themselves. Um, but it's I mean that is the one that is, uh, and that is why more products are coming onto the market to try and gamify. If someone can gamify pelvic floor exercises, then that is that's what it needs. But yeah, there's not been much development in terms of um, what we what we prescribe women to do. So I want to talk about menopause a little bit. This is you know a pretty big one. What do women need to be doing? to stay fit because active obviously means different things to different people walking is an activity yoga is an activity but on their own they are not going to cut the mustard are they like what do we need to be doing yeah so we need to move right so that's number one we just need to move as much as possible in terms of helping to manage our symptoms and also improve the quality of our life in terms of our risk of heart disease our bone density our muscle strength our, our weight then strength training is is the key and doing strength training well because you know if you remember what I just said about that injury risk mm-hmm. like women 
we don't know how to move. So we need to be taught how to, we're not talking legs, bums and tums kind of like flapping around. We're talking about like proper weightlifting and you are not going to get massive. You're not going to mm. get like really muscle bound. What that strength training does is it really improve? it reduces the rate of bone density loss. And it also maintains our muscle strength because when we get to menopause, we're kind of hardwired to lose muscle and put on fat but by stimulating the body with strength training regularly like three times a week then that really helps mitigate against that now for someone that's not never done any strength training body weight is going to be absolutely fine and a five kilo dumbbell and an eight kilo kettlebell will be grand but you only get the effects if you keep training slightly outside of your comfort zone so you do need to keep progressing those exercises but Proper good quality strength training, which is hard to access because, you know, gyms are intimidating. Women don't know how to lift. The spaces are often dominated by men or young women, like taking loads of selfies. And it's just like, oh, I don't know how I fit into this place or where to start. Three times a week feels like quite a big commitment. So what kind of length of time should we be exercising for? Like is half an hour sufficient? Like does it yeah, need to be more it is, than absolutely that? is. Like you can get, you can do a great strength workout. You can get in and out of that gym in 40 minutes, in 40, 45 minutes with like a warm up a really dedicated sort of 25 minutes of lifting and then a, then a cool down at the end. But you, you can also, you know, you could do twice a week at the gym and you could like then do strength training at home. You could do supplementary exercises at home, but twice a week is okay. Three times a week is amazing. Once a week just isn't enough. So I think that if we kind of aim for that two to three times a week of some kind of strength training, but if you're a sports person and you're like, I never set my foot inside the gym, that is not a space that I want to be in. Then that's what we need. You know, if I'm, I'm working with, like, like netball like you talk to mm. and say well how do we incorporate this into a body weight circuit that a normal like a normal coach can train you how to do like how can we coach body weight training and that will all help that will all absolutely help like anything is better than nothing if you can load it up with some weights brilliant but if not then we need to do it body weight and add in a little bit of impact which will increase the, sort of the effects of that session there's so many things I could talk to you about, Baz, because obviously I, I just think it's fascinating I saw something on your Instagram the other week about nutrition and fasting and how like there's actually not really any evidence that fasting is particularly useful for women I thought that was really interesting no typically you know most of that evidence is from overweight white pre-diabetic men and they're so uh, that works for them like if you're pre-diabetic and you're obese and you're like on the edge of getting diabetes like intermittent fasting restricted eating for huge amounts of time of your day works but we've just extrapolated that data and applied it to a wider society without actually you know it's like it's just a belief that it works and brands have got on board and people have got on board and loads of books have been written which has kind of just gone oh this is a thing this must this must be okay and I've worked with many women who've said well my husband or my partner's doing this and it's working for him and it's not working for me and it's just making them really angry that like that the the men in their lives can just shift weight easily by just Mm. not eating for eight or 12 hours a day but we are our hormones are so sensitive to our blood sugar levels we Mm. have to have good blood sugar and you just can't have that if you're if you have huge chunks of your day when you're not eating yeah you go into starvation mode don't you yeah it's a stress state it's a stress state for women and it's not a stress state for men we produce more cortisol and then we've got more hormones in our system and then that and those excess of hormones have to be stored somewhere so actually you might get more abdominal fat or belly fat as people call it going on a restricted calorie intake than you would or, or you know that, that sort of intermittent fasting than you would if you weren't and I think that regularly eating throughout the day we want we especially in midlife we need to reduce stress 
So menopause is stressful. It mm. is chemically very, very stressful. And at the life stage, it's just stressful because regardless of what your life circumstances are, they're generally full on. So if you combine the chemical with the life, with what's going on in your life, we need to do everything we can with our lifestyle to reduce the levels of stress. And intermittent fasting is not doing that. Where can we find you guys on social media to follow what's going on? Yeah, we're at the well, the well dash HQ, and we're on Instagram and Twitter, and those are our main platforms. And obviously, you can buy the book on Amazon. Yep, and the book, the Female Body Bible, which is fascinating, and you know all sorts of information in there. Again, not just of interest, I don't think, to people who want to pursue an active or sporty lifestyle, the the sporty spices, if you will, among yeah. us. The book is published on May the 11th by Bantam. Baz, thank you so much for joining me. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. Standard Issue for All Women.